Welcome to the Institute of World Politics China Asia Programs event in Reston. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia Program at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, we are Graduate School of National Security, Intelligence, and International Affairs. Um, we have a doctoral program called uh, Doctor of Statecraft and National Security, abbreviated as DSNS, also which I graduated from last year. Um, and we have seven master's programs, um, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study, as well as a continuing education program. So if you'd like to learn more um, about our academic programs, please feel free to uh, speak to me at the conclusion of the event, and I'll be more than happy to assist you in getting connected with one of our pro uh, recruiters. Also, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, please go to iwp.edu slash donate. And um, today, before I introduce um, Dr. James Robbins, uh, the Dean of Academics at IWP, to you, I'd like to express my gratitude to Dr. Long Nguyen, as well as um, Kimi Duong, as Pragmatics is hosting today's event in Reston. Indeed, we are grateful for their kind support as Dr. Long, an IWP trustee and the founder, chairman, and CEO of Pragmatics, along with his wife, Kimi, uh, Vice Chairman and CFO of Pragmatics have kindly donated both office space and classrooms in their corporate building for IWP's use. As a distinguished scholar practitioner, Dr. Long has been an active supporter of the U.S. intelligence community while also serving as a leading figure for the D.C. Vietnamese community. IWP's China Asia program is also de uh, delighted to invite the members of the D.C. Vietnamese community uh, specifically the movement for the renaissance of Vietnam to today's event. So today's event um, is part of the Asian Asia Lecture Series, which I founded in 2019 at IWP and later became part of the China Asia program um, last year. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we are privileged to have Dr. James Robbins, uh, the Dean of Academics at IWP, who will be delivering a lecture on the myth and realities of the 1968 Tet Offensive. Dr. James Robbins is a national security columnist for USA Today and Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs at the American Foreign Policy Council. Dr. Robbins is also a former Special Assistant in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and in 2007 was awarded the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff Joint Meritorious Civilian Service Award. He is also the former award-winning senior editorial writer for Foreign Affairs at the Washington Times. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and other publications. He appears regularly on national and international television and radio as well. Dr. Robbins holds a PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and has taught at the National Defense University and Marine Corps University, among other schools. His research interests include terrorism and national security strategy, political theory, and military history. Dr. Robbins is the author of five books, including The Real Coster, From Boy General to Tragic Hero, This Time We Win, Revisiting the Tet Offensive, and the critically acclaimed last in their class, Coster, Pickett, and the Goats of West Point. So 
Thank you, Dean Robbins, <laughs> for having us today. And we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I wanted to reiterate my thanks to Dr. Long and to Kimmy for um, hosting us here tonight. And uh, just to note, when, when uh, Dr. Long learned about that we were going to do this um, presentation on the Tet Offensive on the Vietnam War, he like, took me aside and was asking me my opinion of the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. I assured him I was not a fan. <laughs> that seemed to pass the test. You know, okay, go ahead then. So it's fine. Um, and incidentally, I mean, if you want to see a much better Vietnam War documentary, I, I strongly urge you to check out the uh, Unauthorized History of the Vietnam War, which is streaming on Fox Nation, hosted by Brett Baer in which I appear, and also one of our faculty members, uh, Al Santoli, who was a Vietnam veteran and uh, best-selling author on the war. So a much better documentary. So as, um, as Amanda noted, I'm author of This Time We Win, a book about the Tet Offensive. And what I'm going to talk about is based on my research for that book. The title comes from when I was writing the book and talking to veterans of the Vietnam War. And uh, I would tell them, oh, I'm working on a book on the Tet Offensive. And more than once, I had a veteran say, oh, do we win this time? Because, you know, that's not the way it was reported. So uh, essentially, that's my answer. Yes, this time we win. So um, here's like a one, one sentence summation of what I would say is the standard view of the Tet Offensive. A surprise attack by North Vietnamese and Viet Cong on symbolic targets during which media reports turned the U.S. public against the war and drove President Johnson to the bargaining table. So I think that's, that's how many educated people uh, would look on the Tet Offensive today. Why is this important? Well, journalists love it because they keep talking about it. Anytime anything bad happens, and particularly when the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq were a bit hotter, um, they would keep writing about this, saying anything bad that happened was suddenly, oh, it's the Tet Offensive all over again. And, you know, here are just some sample headlines that I grab. Uh, you know, a car bomb goes off. Oh, it's the Tet Offensive. Uh, you know, drug cartels are going to have a Tet Offensive. Uh, Joe Klein of Time Magazine when the WikiLeaks dump happened, you know, a bunch of classified documents that were uh, released, he said, oh, it's a Tet Offensive. Really? Okay. The fact is that none of these things have anything to do with the Tet Offensive. But journalists love to invoke it because it is a preset defeat narrative. All you have to do is say, oh, that's just like the Tet Offensive, and the implication is this foreboding that, ah, this is the turning point that finally means the end of everything, because that's how they have presented Tet. It also inspires the enemy. They, they love that narrative. Uh, unconventional uh, opponents of the United States, guerrillas and terrorists, they're very inspired by the Tet narrative because they know they can tap into the Tet narrative. They, they're the ones committing these acts. They're the ones setting off the car bombs or doing the other things. And 
so it's the it, they want to seek ways to try to influence our public opinion because it's the only way that terrorists and guerrillas and these unconventional actors can win. They can't really defeat our military. They can't defeat our economy. But what they can do is defeat our public opinion and create sense of doubt in our policymakers. So they try explicitly to tap into things like that Tet Offensive narrative to try to gain a strategic advantage over us. I mean, even Al-Qaeda, for example, specifically said in some of their writings that that's what they were trying to do and you know, invoke the Tet Offensive and said that's what we're trying to emulate. Even though, again, you know, small-scale attacks have nothing to do with Tet. So here's my main thesis, that that version of the Tet Offensive is actually wrong in every single aspect. It was not a surprise attack. It was not attacking symbolic targets. It did not increase anti-war sentiment in this country. And it did not drive President Johnson to the bargaining table. All of those things are demonstrably wrong. So yes, the current narrative says what TED is, but it's completely false. So let's look at each one of those things. First, not a surprise attack. You know, intelligence failure, and this became a meme during the Iraq War too, where people talked about intelligence failure, and they would talk about the TED offensive in the same breath. But in fact, the US government and the intelligence agencies and the military were well aware that this attack was coming. As early as the fall of 1967, months before the attack, intelligence was picking up signals from the North that they were planning something. There were documents captured in November that outlined exactly what the attack was going to be. And some of these were just little tactical areas around the countryside where a plan was picked up here, a plan was picked up there. Some of the strategic and more operational plans were captured so people understood what was about to happen. The CIA in Saigon wrote up a report about this in November called The Big Gamble, in which they laid it out. Here is what the enemy is planning. They're going to try a big offensive. There was, uh, in January, four weeks before the offensive kicked off, the U.S. Embassy held a press conference, basically laying it out. Here's what's going to happen. There's a big offensive coming, and laid out what they could put into the public domain. Three weeks before the attack, General Wan, pictured here, who in World War II had operated in Southeast Asia. He was a guy very in tune with the culture and understood a lot of good things. He looked at the intelligence. He was convinced there was going to be a big attack on the cities. And he convinced General Westmoreland to allow him to redeploy his forces around Saigon and around other major cities in order to respond to what he thought was coming. And in fact, he was right about it. The South Vietnamese government was convinced to shorten the traditional New Year's furloughs, since, you know, Tet is the New Year's holiday. And U.S. forces across the country were readying for this battle. And even the journalists knew. This is the thing. The journalists were the ones who said it was a surprise attack, but the journalists knew better. Uh, Don North of ABC News he said, for months, any journalist with decent sources was expecting something big at Tet. In fact, this particular reporter 
rescheduled his vacation so that he would be in country during Tet because he wanted to report on the attack. Three days before the Tet Offensive, here's in the Washington Post. The communists appear to be preparing a major push in their winter spring offensive. Okay, it's three days before. So when the attack actually arrived, well, one problem for the communists was that they missignaled their forces. And so some of them attacked two days too soon, some of them attacked one day too soon, and then some attacked on time and some attacked late. So that was all miscoordinated. But U.S. forces were already on alert before the first attacks happened all across the country. And South Vietnamese forces were also on alert. So it wasn't a surprise attack. But to journalists and Americans at home who maybe weren't following this as closely, maybe they weren't reading all the news, maybe they didn't hear about the press conference at the embassy, you know, they didn't see these other statements. To them, it was a surprise because they weren't paying attention. But President Johnson, who was not at all surprised, later said that not getting ahead of that story was one of the worst mistakes he made. The White House just didn't publicize it enough. They should have been more on top of it. Okay, fine. But that's why it wasn't a surprise attack. Second point, it was not aimed at symbolic targets. The reason why this is important is if you say, oh, the communists were just trying to send a message, well, then anything they do is a victory because they send a message. But that's not what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was have a mass attack involving tens of thousands of Viet Cong and North Vietnamese regulars all through the country in an attempt to actually win the war. Well, they didn't do that. Their plan was called the General Offensive and General Uprising. And the way it was supposed to work was that they would send forces into the cities, which they had never done before. They would take over key parts of these cities and then foment this general uprising. They believed that the South Vietnamese people were so upset with their own government, so angry at the Americans, and so ready for the communist solution that they would rally to this, that they would you know, come out of the woodwork, they would rally to the guerrillas, they would support them, and essentially it would overthrow the government and present the Americans with a fait accompli, like, okay, the war's over. And why did the communists believe that the South Vietnamese people would respond this way? Because the American media was reporting it. They had read about all this in the New York Times, that how disenchanted the South Vietnamese people were with their own government, and you know, how ready they were for uh, you know, the communist solution. Well, no, that was a big misestimation on the part of the enemy. So if you measure what the enemy hoped to achieve, which was total victory, against what they did achieve, which was a complete defeat, you can see the magnitude of it. But if you say, well, all they wanted was a symbolic victory, then you have redefined the battle down to the point where they do win. And so that's another problem with that press narrative. It's not true, but it's also kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, here are some uh, Marines at Hue City, which saw some of the worst fighting. And Dr. Khan and I were just talking about this since his family was from there. And uh, I mean, it was the toughest part of the fight. We, U.S. and South Vietnamese forces still won that part of the battle, and a win is a win. 
Um, but this was also at Hue City was where you had the famous Hue Massacre, where thousands of people were uh, murdered by the communists during their occupation of that city. That didn't seem to generate a lot of headlines, but that did happen. The other photo is at um, Tansanut Airport, which is kind of a more typical outcome of the attacks. The battle at Hue City, which went on for a couple weeks, that was not typical. Uh, mostly the attacks were beaten back in a day or so. And at the tactical level, here's another myth, the idea that the South Vietnamese army didn't defend the country. At the tactical level, they did brilliantly. Number one, in many cases, they had the enemy plans. You know, our intelligence had developed that or their intelligence had developed that. There were cases where a battle plan had been captured weeks before, and then on the day of the battle, the enemy came exactly like what was in the plan. They didn't even adjust their plan, even though they lost their, you know, their, their battle plan. They didn't adjust it. And so everybody was ready for them. Okay, so the communist line was that the South Vietnamese troops were demoralized, they were untrained, they, they didn't want to be there, they were conscripts, they would either run away or they would join, like they would join the communist cause and, you know, everybody would defect. In fact, none of that happened. They didn't run away, they didn't defect, and a post-battle survey by General Abrams found that only a few units didn't perform as well as expected. Most performed either as expected or above. So it's completely wrong to say that the South Vietnamese troops weren't defending their country. They did a great job at it. But again, this is a total perception failure by the communists. It was either total propaganda that the South Vietnamese troops would behave this way, or maybe the communists really believed it because they read it in the New York Times that, you know, oh, the Arvin would defect to them. Okay, well, they didn't. So here's how you get it being called a symbolic victory. The excessive coverage of the attack on the U.S. Embassy. This was the most potent image, so far as Americans were concerned, of the first day of the fighting, was the attack on the embassy. 19 Viet Cong sappers attacking the embassy, most of whom were killed. And while fighting raged across the country, fighting was raging everywhere, but most journalists, most news organizations were reporting on the attack on the US embassy, or was this our embassy. And it seemed as though, and it was reported as though, the enemy had mounted this kind of suicide strike on an American target to kind of, you know, shove it in the Americans' faces, we'll show you, we're gonna attack your embassy and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but again, they didn't intend for their attacks to be purely symbolic. They were really trying to win. And so where do we get that? And here's, here's one of the sad facts of this, of where you get that idea that the whole thing was symbolic. It actually tracks back to a CIA assessment, sort of one of these hurry up assessments where Johnson's national security advisor wanted to know what was going on. And so the CIA did this kind of rushed assessment um, where they said that the enemy activity was intended primarily for the psychological impact it would have on the South Vietnamese. And so that got inserted into White House talking points. And then from the president and from the secretary of defense, you had them talking about symbolic attacks. So the journalists didn't make it up. It really came from the White House, and that was another of those self-inflicted wounds that we had. 
uh, unfortunate, but that became kind of a focus. People turned away from the idea that the enemy was trying to actually win the war and focused in on that symbolic thing. And here's one of the attackers of the US Embassy. And note the headline, Embassy Held Hours by Kong's Suicide Squad. There are two things captured in this. One is, and you can see this more in the text, there was a huge debate and incredible uh, focus of journalists on the question, did the Kong get inside the embassy? This one very technical question, because it was reported that they did. Who reported it? Peter Arnett from AP. How did he know? He heard someone say it in passing. He didn't actually see it, but sort of he claimed, well, he heard some guys talking about it. He didn't actually talk to them. He just kind of overheard it, that some people had entered the embassy. And so there became this huge debate. Did they get in or not? Well, you know, the old political adage, if you're debating, you're losing, right? So the debate was kind of useless. In fact, they didn't get in. Uh, John Roach, one of President Johnson's advisors, was in the White House at the time, and he was on the phone with a guy named Arch Calhoun, who was actually in the embassy. And he was asking, like, hey, what's up? And he's like, it's, you know, it's fine. It's being taken care of. They didn't get in, and everything's good. So he went to the press pool and talked to the AP chief who was in the White House and said, hey, I've got the embassy on the phone. You guys are reporting that the VC are inside the building, and he is inside the building. He says it's fine. And the AP reporter wouldn't talk to him. He said, I don't know who's on the other end of the phone. He could be in Cameron Bay, for all I know. Okay, fine, some journalism. But you see, the narrative had taken over. And so this, this kind of useless debate about whether they set foot inside the embassy, I mean, they wound up like this guy, so it hardly matters. And the other thing about it is this idea that it's a suicide squad, like, you know, kamikaze. No, they were not. Their orders, the orders of the terrorists who attacked the embassy, was to seize the building and hold it and wait for reinforcements. And they thought the reinforcements would be amongst like this mass uprising that was going to happen or that some other Viet Cong would show up. Well, that's not a suicide mission. <laughs> that, that is a, a specific military mission that these guys had. Seize the building and wait for reinforcements. But if you report it that they were a suicide squad, then this constitutes victory, right? They said, oh, they, never, they thought they were going to be killed, and they were killed. And so it was completely symbolic. Well, no, it may have been suicidal. I mean, the mission, it was pretty bad. It wasn't very well planned, uh, particularly these guys. This was a last-minute addition to the battle plan. That's the other thing. This, attacking the U.S. Embassy wasn't even part of the original plan. It was just kind of added later. But you see, I mean, it's just kind of a technical point. But if you report it as a suicide mission, then getting killed means you win. Well, it wasn't a suicide mission, and that was just a bit of artistic license, but it was very negative. The press in general responded negatively to the Tet Offensive. Before the Tet Offensive, 79% of editorial comments found in U.S. newspapers were positive towards the conduct of the war. After the Tet Offensive, only 29% were positive towards the war. And during the Tet Offensive, 0% were positive towards the conduct of the war. With respect to television news coverage, before Tet, you had critics of the war being quoted on TV like 5% of the time. Uh, afterwards, 
25%. Uh, before TET, you had about half the comments came from American troops. After TET, about 20%. So there was this big shift in the way that the news was going to be managed with respect to uh, Vietnam. But the critical turning point that everyone identified was the so-called Walter Cronkite moment, and it was named that later, um, when Walter Cronkite kind of took a stand against the conduct of the war. And President Johnson allegedly said to one of his aides, if I've lost Con Cronkite, I've lost middle America. I mean, that, that story has become legendary amongst reporters, because imagine, you know, you do a news report. And it sways the president of the United States to basically change his entire viewpoint on this major conflict that he is engaged in. I mean, imagine lots of reporters after this were looking for their Walter Cronkite moment. And if you just Google that expression and you find like during the Iraq war or during the Afghan war, you know, some reporter would say something and people would go, oh, it's the Walter Cronkite moment. As if, right, as though anything like that is going to happen. But no, journalists would love to have that kind of impact, you know, of being able to file a news story and suddenly history changes. But not exactly true, as we'll see. Uh, these are images from Kisan, which, uh, you know, is in the northern part of South Vietnam, where a siege was fought. And that battle actually broke out slightly before the rest of the Tet Offensive. And it's debated what that meant. Was it to distract attention to the north while their you know, attacks in the south would come later? Were the troops around Kisan supposed to overwhelm the Marines and then swoop down the highway to Hue and then continue their victorious march down the coast? Probably, if, if it worked out that way. Um, it was a, a massive attack by the North Vietnamese and completely unsuccessful. Uh, in fact, it was the kind of battle that General Westmoreland wanted because North Vietnamese troops massed around the defensive position at Kisan. Well, yeah, and then they were bombed. That was the whole point of it. Get the enemy to mass and then attack them. Because as you know, in an unconventional war, it's very difficult to find the enemy. They're always scattered about. Well, if you can get them in one place, then you can attack them, which is exactly what happened. But the problem with the press coverage of Kisan was that because it was mainly a defensive fight for the Marines, that's all you saw in the news. Here's a Marine taking cover. Here's a bomb landing. Here's a plane burning. Things like that. And so it didn't look like victory. And it was hard to report as a victory because the real action was taking place with B-52s bombing the heck out of rear area enemy concentrations. Well, you know, that just doesn't have the news value of the burning airplane. And by the way, that one airplane wound up like that, and they kept running the footage over and over. So it looked like all the airplanes were winding up like that. Walter Cronkite, whom we were just talking about, he said, I found when he went there to report on it, I found very few people out there who really believe Kisan could be held if the North Vietnamese are determined to take it. Well, if you characterize it like that, how are we supposed to win? Basically, what he was saying was, well, if they really wanted it, they could take it. Well, it looks like they're trying, right? I mean, they were trying their best to take it, but they couldn't. But if you skew the news that way, what you're basically saying is, if we lose, you know, if they take it, fine, we've lost. 
But if we win, it's because they let us win. It's because they didn't really want it. So how are we supposed to win? You can't. But that's just, you know, makes meaningful victory impossible. Okay, so here's the most famous image coming out of the Vietnam War, coming out of the Tet Offensive, one of the most famous images in military reporting. And, you know, it's extremely evocative. And I think many people here probably know the story of this, but there's uh, General Awan, who's the police chief of Saigon, uh, executing a VC terrorist named Baylop, who had done a lot of dastardly things earlier in the day, you know, killing people. Uh, we were just uh, was talking to um, Dr. Khan about how, you know, he had, uh, you know, executed a family of the of one of uh, General Awan's officers, including the officer who was beheaded. And we understand the emotion behind why General Awan did that. I mean, he was pretty upset. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what anyone else would do in those circumstances. But uh, Eddie Adams, who was the photographer who got that scene, who won the Pulitzer Prize for spot photography, uh, later got to know General Juan and, in fact, testified on his defense when he had escaped to this country and some uh, left-wing politicians were trying to get him thrown out of the country. And Eddie Adams went and testified in his defense because uh, he understood that this was, was kind of an exceptional scene. And he apologized to General Juan for ruining his life, which, you know, ever after this, he was kind of not very welcome in most places. And the other thing to know about this, and, you know, you can learn a lot about this image and how it was distributed. I, I, I read a lot about it in the book. But below it, Okay, this is, this is directly from the front page of the New York Times. And look below it. Here is a South Vietnamese soldier carrying his daughter, his infant daughter, who had been murdered by VC terrorists. You know, and William F. Buckley wrote about that image, and he said, you know, she has the face of an angel. Well, who remembers that image? Because that lower image is a lot more typical of what was going on during the Tet Offensive than the image above it. So, you know, again, it just gets into the way that the, that the war was remembered or that the, the, um, that the press reported it. And not to mention the Hue Massacre, which I mentioned before, in which no images were run. You never saw images like that. But if you want to see something comparable, look at the imagery coming out of Ukraine, where Russian or Wagner group uh, mercenaries took people out of villages and, you know, killed them and buried them in ditches. Well, that was what was going on at Hue, although 10 times more. But those images just weren't reported. Okay, so here's an anti-war protest. And I want to talk about the public opinion angle, that the Tet Offensive turned the public against the war. Because this is a type of image that people have come to accept as a um, sort of the popular opinion, if not a majority opinion, of Americans at the time of Tet. And popular culture since 1968 has generally accepted and transmitted the notion that by this time, most people in America 
either opposed the war or suddenly turned against the war, and that suddenly the doves, remember, you know, of hawks and doves, the hawks support the war and the doves oppose the war, that suddenly the doves had taken flight and, you know, America had turned that way. Well, not the case. The public actually wanted to escalate after Tet. And this I found, I was surprised, really, having only learned the opposite story. But in my research, I was really surprised by this. That, that image right there is from the front page of the New York Times, at the very bottom, but still on the front page. And the image on the left, the line going up, those are people who self-identify as hawks. And it goes from December to February 18th, which is almost three weeks into the attack. And you can see the number of people who identify themselves as hawks, who really support the war, is going up and up. And the other image are people who approve of Johnson's handling of the war. This is really interesting. It goes down. So yeah, people didn't approve of Johnson's handling of the war because they didn't think he was doing enough. It wasn't that they opposed the war per se. They just didn't like what Lyndon Johnson was doing. They wanted to do much more. And the number of doves, which uh, had dropped down to 11% by this time, was actually lower in February, 2% lower than the number of Americans who thought we should use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Not something I would support. But I mean, think about it. So it was being reported that, oh, suddenly America's dovish, people oppose the war, they want to get out of Vietnam. No, actually, more people wanted to nuke Vietnam, to nuke Hanoi, than people who wanted to get out of the war. What people wanted to do was escalate, which is a very American approach to war. People said, let's just get it done. That's why people weren't in favor of what Johnson was doing, but were also hawks. They were saying, Let's stop messing around. Let's just finish the job. That's what people wanted out of Tet. So this idea that the Tet Offensive you know, suddenly made Americans have this great moral question about, oh, should we even be there? I think we should get out. That is flatly not true. And another fascinating thing I found, and I, I, this is hard to believe, but it's right there in black and white if you go back and look at the polls, the highest support for the war effort was actually among young people. Young people supported the war effort at this time more than any other group. Bizarre. Anyway, um, so what was needed was to have you know, a rapid counterstroke. And some people like Bus Wheeler, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was saying, give us more troops and we'll finish the job. You know, let's escalate. Westmoreland, same thing, saying we have them on the run. We've destroyed their main forces. They're out in the open you know, let's go after him. Let's really just finish this war. But no, because Johnson was being driven to the negotiating table, according to the narrative. Well, that's not even true, because it wasn't Johnson who needed to be driven to negotiate. Between 1964 and 1968, the United States made 70 separate appeals to the North for peace talks. Johnson had been at the negotiating table the entire time. In fact, General Omar Bradley, you know, great uh, hero of World War II and uh, you know, later chairman 
of the Joint Chiefs, he was saying we shouldn't keep asking for negotiation because it makes us look weak. Because every time we ask, the Vietnamese say no, or they just say nothing. So when the president in March, March 31st, 1968, when he made his appeal for talks yet again, and, it, and also at the same time announced he would not run for re-election, yes, that made us look incredibly weak, and it made it look like Johnson had been defeated. And the reason why he chose not to run for president again for another term, which he probably would have won if he had run, but the reason why he didn't, he later explained, was he wanted to make it look like his offer for peace talks was really sincere. Like he felt that, well, the reason that the communists hadn't previously responded was they didn't trust me, and now I'm just showing them, look, I'm willing to not run for president. That's how sincere I am. But he didn't know who he was talking to. The communists could care less whether he was sincere. In fact, when he made that offer, the uh, Chinese chairman, Zhou Enlai, called it, he said it was a trick. He said it was a wicked and deceitful scheme. Like they didn't believe it. They said, no, no one's going to give up power just to get talks. Well, they didn't know Lyndon Johnson. He was willing to do it. And then, of course, they agreed to talks. And then right before the talks launched Little Tet, the little echo of the Tet Offensive, an extra attack. Uh, principally in Saigon, to try to create more favorable circumstances for the negotiations, because that's how they operate. It's the same thing happened with the French. So here are just some lessons learned from this exercise of deconstructing these myths. Um, first, don't give the enemy credit for a better plan than they have. Just judge it based on what they actually are trying to do. You know, don't, don't redefine things so that they get a victory. And this is particularly important when we're dealing with terrorists and guerrillas and unconventional actors like that. Don't give them so much credit for being these strategic geniuses for these attacks that they do, because that just empowers them and emboldens them. Um, you know, the press coverage in unconventional wars, it's just difficult. It's hard to cover. Reporters want a storyline. They're going to find a storyline. So try to adapt to it. Try to give them a storyline before the fact. Don't just let them come up with what they come up with because it's probably not going to be accurate. Another point, you know, the public opinion, the public opinion in, in during the Tet Offensive, it was exactly the opposite of what has been reported. And maybe the public isn't as manipulable as people give them credit. Maybe the public can't be stampeded the way that people think. So give the American people credit for being more sensible than you think. Don't pass up opportunities for decisive action. That was a big problem uh, with Johnson. He just chose not to escalate uh, for a variety of reasons. He didn't think it would work, or he was hemmed in politically, or he was listening to people who said that you know the public were against it, the public were not against it. But, you know, sometimes escalation is needed. Let me just say that um, George W. Bush's polling numbers were a lot worse than Lyndon Johnson's when he decided to do the surge in Iraq, and it worked. So, you know, he, George W. Bush ignored public opinion and went ahead with a successful strategy. Johnson could have done it, but he chose not to. So that's my final point there about have a strong executive 
he will set the terms of the debate. Lyndon Johnson was kind of AWOL on this. He wasn't directing events the way he should have been. I know a lot of people blame the press for the uh, perceptions in Vietnam. And, and yeah, the press bears a lot of the blame. But so does President Johnson, because he kind of let it get away from him. And he could have he could have directed it in a different direction, but he didn't. So a final thing I wanted to say, um, a friend of mine, Fred Rustman, who was uh, served with the CIA in Vietnam and Cambodia, and then later went on to some very high-ranking positions in the agency, um, he, he, uh, he reminded me recently of the closing of my book. And I wrote this in 2010. But listen to this. In the long run, the Tet Offensive left an enduring sense of American political weakness. But an enemy cannot achieve the same type of impact when our country has strong leadership, particularly a president willing to take the steps necessary to secure victory. We may yet again see Americans being choppered to safety as another former ally is abandoned to insurgents, to foreign intervention, or a combination of both, or perhaps not. The choice will be ours. And unfortunately for the people of Afghanistan, in 2021, our government made the wrong choice again. So with that, I would like to uh, conclude my remarks, and I'll take any questions. Thank you. And on behalf of the friend of the Imperial City of Way, I appreciate your talk. Thank you, sir. Our, our city. During that time, I was back there for three weeks at the new Jackie on leave. And I, where, I, where I lost two, two cousins, four neighbors, a, a friend, family of five, and many more on the list. I have at least one of Thank you. God bless. That is, yeah. See, it's, this is not just history. This is living history. This is what people here in this room have lived through. And, you know, it's not just some dusty book. So thank you, sir. At this moment, I'm waiting for the new week of the new book from Stephen Young. Uh, I don't think that it's just an app. Is it a good one? Oh, good, because there are a lot of bad ones. <laughs> yeah, the, the um, part of the issue with the reporting on Huey and the massacre in particular was that the U.S. Information Agency was up there um, documenting. And you can go to the archives and find all kinds of things, maps, photographs, accounts, everything. And... Um, but according to our law at the time, that particular agency could not do domestic reporting. They could only disseminate reporting abroad. So a lot of that information went out, but it wasn't coming into the United States. And that was the, that was the best documented part of that from a U.S. reporting perspective was what our government did, and our government wasn't sharing it. So now you have to go to archives to find it. But um, Douglas Pike, which, you know, he was, yeah, 
he was all over it. He was reporting it. He was documenting it. He was one of the leading voices in this, uh, uh, you know, an American, and he couldn't he couldn't tell anybody. So terrible. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Steve Traber. I was on uh, uh, aircraft carrier seventy two off the coast there, but the um, uh, point that you uh, oh, the uh, point that you brought up about the uh, aftermath of the battle in the minds of various folks uh, reminds me that uh, there was some dispute amongst historians low these decades later about when the order to actually start reducing troop levels was given. Did you have to run across that while you were doing your research? Yes, there were. See, part of the problem was Johnson, for political reasons, set a troop cap. And there was no magic number to the troop cap. In fact, it was a huge mistake because the minute... I mean, if you're conducting a war, the last thing you want to do is set some arbitrary limit that you later have to answer for. So at that time, Westmoreland and Wheeler and others were saying, give us more troops. And so there was this internal debate inside the administration. And then somehow um, this was leaked to Robert Kennedy, who made like a big deal about it. Oh, like he's going to violate his troop cap and blah, blah. In fact, they were nowhere near the troop cap, and that's actually when they started the troop drawdown, was in there. Like, Westmoreland had asked for a certain amount, he didn't even get that much, and then they started drawing down. But it was all in the context of that, like this, this, this political issue. So, I mean, yeah, historians can debate, but it really, again, like many things, it just came down to politics. It had nothing to do with the facts on the ground. And if, if Johnson had just not made a troop cap in the first place, then it wouldn't even have been an issue because it just would have been however many troops you have. But that's what really what started this whole like debate over this X amount, Y amount, you know, and it became a thing. And so when the drawdown started, it was, oh, it was here, it was then. I mean, it's kind of a senseless debate if you ask me, but it's in the context of that politics. And we can follow, okay. Yeah, I actually have a bunch of questions, but okay. um, a couple of things. You said Johnson barely blamed um, for not taking decisive actions. What actions were actually on the table? I know, you know, the nuclear option is not. Um, right. Well, right. You have to, to look at why Johnson wouldn't do it. You have to go back to the beginning in which he set the terms of the war. The war was going to be fought in the South. And, you know, he didn't think about going over the DMZ. He didn't think about going north in any meaningful way, except with air power. And even that was limited because he was afraid of escalation. He didn't want it to be a nuclear war. He didn't want it to be like the Korean War, where China suddenly comes flooding over the border, you know, where we cross the 38th parallel in, in Korea, and then suddenly China was in the war. He didn't want that scenario. So what was on the table? The Joint Chiefs had plans where they could have adapted 
and move north, like from Kisan. They could have gone into Laos. They could have moved up on that part. There were no plans that I know of for an amphibious invasion or for a cross DMZ, but they could have done something there on the frontier with Laos. And, you know, with a more um, flexible minded president, perhaps they could have had planning for something that would have gone directly north. But even, even if you don't, it's foolish from a military perspective to tell your enemy, we're going to limit the war to this location. It means you don't have to keep troops anywhere else. Wouldn't it have been smarter to keep the North Vietnamese guessing? You know, have a fleet suddenly appear off of their coast. You know, all of a sudden, 100,000 of their people have to move there to, you know, defend against an invasion that may or may not come. I mean, just do something to try to keep them off balance. But because Johnson explicitly, in policy, defined the war as just the South, you know, we're not going out outside of that. We're not going to violate Laos overtly, you know, not going to Cambodia. Of course, we did both, but not in a big way until later. Um, you know, he made it, he made any kind of planning for that impossible, even though Wheeler and Westmoreland were kind of trying to do it and, and encouraging it to happen. But no, Johnson wouldn't cross that line. Yeah, I have actually a couple. Yeah, yeah. so um, I mean, I ask. I mean, there's a there's always a major debate going on within the Auburn community whether they could have should have gone north. Um, yes, to both. Yes, <laughs> and uh, well, and I know within the American vets community, it's always. I think they blame Westmoreland a lot more than Johnson. Um, yeah. Debacle. Yeah, you know again. <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I used to be more critical of Westmoreland, but the more research I did, the more I realized he was he was doing what he had to do because of what his commander in chief wanted him to do. And he was highly limited on what he could do. And like and others in the military establishment, particularly the World War Two veterans, although, of course, Abrams was a World War Two veteran. He had a different policy. But again, it was within the confines of what we were allowed to do. Uh, at his Johns Hopkins speech in 1965, Lyndon Johnson said, you know, we're, we're just, we're here to defend the South. We're not, not here to, uh, you know, invade or, or uh, have regime change. He didn't use that expression in the North. And uh, he said, we will convince the North Vietnamese that we cannot be defeated. Well, it's hard to fight a war if your metric is, I don't want to be defeated. That's not a victory. That's just, you're hanging on. And he's going to convince the North Vietnamese. I mean, North Vietnamese are there. They live there, right? The, it's their country. They're not leaving. So who's going to leave? The Americans are going to leave. And the North Vietnamese knew this. And so the minute that Lyndon Johnson defined the war in those terms, he was setting it up for failure. And he stuck to that. And that's a problem. Because again, we didn't have to invade the North, but we could have made them think we were going to invade at the very least and made them take defensive actions. But in my opinion, we should have, because what the heck? They, they weren't restraining themselves in any way in their attacks on the South Vietnamese or the US. So we shouldn't have been restrained in any way attacking them if you want to win. 
But again, Johnson wasn't looking for a win. He was looking for a draw. He was looking for a stalemate. Well, he didn't get it. Yes, ma'am. Um, no American history text, standard American history textbook for high school covers the Tet Offensive in this way. Your research shows. So that's factual error in almost every American history textbook. Is that ignorance, sloppiness? Do you think there might be something that accounts for the inaccurate portrayal that every American student has? Yeah, because who wrote the textbooks, right? They're people who have bought the you know, progressive line on this, um, you know, who bought the standard explanation, which was written by the journalists who opposed the war and then by the, uh, you know, the hippies who never left school and became academics and then wrote the histories. So, you know, that that's how the standard view got put in place. But there's a lot of what, you know, what's so-called revisionist history happening right now. And uh, people call it revisionist, but what myself and others are doing is just looking at the, the real history, like digging out the facts. A lot of the uh, North Vietnamese records are available now that weren't available back then, where they spell out exactly what they were doing. And, uh, you know, take, for example, the um, Tonkin Gulf incident, which is reported as, as, you know, Johnson made it up or it was, it was fake or a false flag or something. Well, there's a museum in Vietnam where they have you know, stuff from that incident where, you know, the heroic sailors of, you know, the communist army faced off against the Americans and stuff like that. Well, if it's completely fake, how do they have this museum with stuff from it? Things like that. Or Bay Lop, the terrorist who got killed by General Lawan. There's a whole big thing for him. It's not like it, that was made up. Because you know, at the time, people said, oh, he was just some innocent dude walking down the street, you know, and they just shot him for no reason. Well, no, they knew why they shot him and know who he was. And there's, there are monuments to him inside uh, North Vietnam, or I should say Vietnam. And, you know, even his wife, I saw an interview with her one, one time recently where she was talking about him. I mean, it's not made up, but the narrative is made up. And that, yeah, that's what got in the textbook. So it's going to take a while. I, I don't know if it'll ever get fixed, but there are scholars working on it. You know, I just wrote this one book, but there are other people working on much more detailed, many more books. And, and you know, it's getting through, like this Brett Baer documentary that we did. Um, you know, that was great. It was all very accurate, and, and um, that's why it was called Unauthorized, right? <laughs> because it's not part of the, the usual narrative. So... Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Robbins, for your very eye-opening lecture. I learned a lot. Um, certainly when I was in high school studying this history, um, I did not learn that the Tet Offensive was actually a comprehensive failure on the uh, communist side. Um, and it, I, I get the impression from uh, your talk that the role of propaganda and media coverage was decisive for shaping U.S. opinion as well as probably the opinion in uh, North Vietnam and the communist bloc. Um, and as, as tensions are rising with China, uh, from my understanding, they have the largest propaganda apparatus of any country in history. Uh, they even use um, prisoners for online commenting, going all the way up to very advanced you know, journalists and editors. 
and uh, academics. So has the U.S. government learned the lessons of the failure of perception management in the Vietnam War and um, how, how decisive might, might it be in a future war with China in terms of their ability to influence U.S. opinion? Um, no, I don't think the members of the U.S. government even know about perception management with respect to Vietnam, if they know anything. Of course, our current president was one of the people who helped betray South Vietnam and, you know, cut the funding that we promised them under the Paris Agreement. So, you know, or, uh, you know, John Kerry, what's his opinion? Um, I, I don't think that, uh, particularly amongst some of the more senior members of the Democratic Party, that that these views um, are known or could be known, like they, they're stuck in the narrative, so they don't know. But with respect to China, it's a huge problem. You know, the, like you said, the world's largest propaganda apparatus, they are actively trying to um, condition our, our people to think a certain way through the narratives. I, I heard something at a talk at IWP recently from someone who looks into these things, that the um, the Chinese version of TikTok, whatever it's called, um, the algorithm of it promotes stories that are positive, uplifting, pro-China, pro-family, all you know, good messages, pro-economy, growth, you know, bad guy Americans, etc. The TikTok that we have the, in the algorithm, it promotes the sensational, the bizarre, the divisive, you know, the anti-American, and so forth. I mean, that's an algorithm. So, yeah, they're very subtle at how they do this. And, you know, we have to fight back against it. It's really, it's terrible the way that these malign foreign powers are trying to insinuate themselves into our public debate to create division and create problems in this country. And they did it then too, which is one of the reasons for these narratives. Some of the sources for the uh, major media back then were actually communist operatives who had infiltrated the South, presented themselves as, you know, objective people, but they were actually working for the communists. And um, a professor at Georgetown, I'm trying to remember his name, recently came out with an article uh, noting that many of the major themes of Soviet uh, information warfare against this country have now become sort of part of the narrative, part of the general debate in this country. He's saying it's, it's a delayed victory of the Soviet Union over us in that things that they had tried to push into our, our public debate about, you know, racial divisions or class divisions or, you know, what have you, any kind of things like that now, which are very commonplace, but started with Soviet propaganda efforts in the 50s and 60s. So... You know, that's that's part of the price of having an open society, I suppose. But we should be a little more on guard against the fact that that we're being manipulated by these foreign powers. And China, I mean, when you look at their social credit system and just all the technical means they have, they're like light years ahead of us. And we have to guard against it. Um. So uh, I can say I can say that uh, your analysis is very detailed and uh, very convincing. But I would like to ask um, if you um, checked uh, that with uh, the wartime communist leader in Vietnam and intellectuals in Vietnam, 
to have some confirmation about your analysis because if you did that it would be more convincing or if uh, you have oh yeah we will plan to do it oh yes the I, I consulted some uh, some information that people had dug out of meetings of the Central Committee of the North Vietnamese Communist Party, uh, in which they came up with this plan, the General Uprising, General Offensive. The timing of it was because they wanted to have victory before the death of Ho Chi Minh, because he was very old and very sick, and they wanted to kind of hurry through the victory while he was still alive. Well, it didn't work, but those records are available. And so all, all, of the, all of their planning, and not to mention the captured documents, all of that is available. So yeah, it checks out from their end, definitely. They're, they were going for victory. They weren't just going for the uh, symbolic attack. Uh, have you recently discussed it with uh, Vietnamese uh, intellectuals? Well, not lately. I wrote this book about 10 years ago, and back then I was discussing it with a lot of people, but I haven't lately. But I know that more has come out because uh, we've had access, since we had now better relations with Vietnam, and scholars have gone over there and brought back a lot of it. So if you look into it, you can see that these reports are out there. Do you have a limited time for one more question? Guess what? <laughs> I got the mic. Do you want, okay. We can talk. Excellent. Yes, sir. Outstanding. Quick question. So at Newport, they teach us, and I wanted to see if you agree with this, that after Tet Offensive, the Viet Cong as a fighting force was pretty much diminished and was not effective after that. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. The reason is, particularly with the Viet Cong, if you're, if you're an unconventional force, terrorist, guerrilla warfare, your main weapon is hiding. Because there aren't many of you. If you know, if you're a if you're a conventional army, then fine. But if you're a guerrilla force, you try to melt into the people. But what they did in Tet was they took the Viet Cong and said, "Okay, go attack the cities." So they were unmasked. You know, they're out there in the open. They were all in one place, so they could be killed or apprehended or what have you. So yes, it decimated their force. In fact, the the um, the destruction of the Viet Cong during Tet was so great that some people have theorized that it was really the North Vietnamese using Tet to get rid of South Vietnamese guerrillas that they didn't want. Like that they're, you know, the, the Southern guerrillas were a little bit too, they might be a problem politically. So if some of them die, no big deal because the the main force NVA would be the ones who would decide it, which of course in 1975 they were. They were the ones who came crashing through the gates with tanks. I mean, these were not, you know, barefoot gorillas carrying a coffee can, you know, bomb. I mean, these were Soviet tanks that were coming through the gates. So that's how the Vietnam War ended. It didn't end with gorillas. And um, yeah, they were they were devastated. They couldn't they couldn't really mount an effective attack after that. There was Little Tet and there was some other things, but they were never the force that they used to be. Oh, maybe we got one more. Let's get one more. Um, it's very interesting because right at the end, you the point that I was going to make, you just made it. Um, but I, I just want to say, I agree with your analysis. I've always agreed that we won Tet, but I didn't have the data. This is terrific that you've been able Thanks. to you know, really lay it out very clearly. Uh, as to the war itself, however, um, 
we had lost the war by then. In my opinion, there was virtually nothing we could have done to have done anything but maybe have a stalemate. Um, we can debate that, and I know you're not here to talk about that, so I, mm. I leave that point alone. But the final point is, if, when I was there in the 70s, my concern was not the Viet Cong at all. It was main force NVA units. Uh, the Viet Cong was almost irrelevant. Uh, I mean, they could annoy you, but that's about all that they were able to do. So when I started to do some research, when I got out, I did my master's thesis, I got access to uh, CIA records that they had in, in Vietnamese. I speak Vietnamese or spoke Vietnamese. Um, and I never found the smoking gun, but from my experience in the field, from talking to people, NBA and VCOM, and from reading what I read and just watching what's going on and going back to Vietnam, as in North Vietnam, going back to Vietnam, um, I came to the conclusion that, in fact, they wanted to get rid of the Viet Cong so yeah. that they could, so the NBA could come in with their tanks, as you say. They were the ones that crashed through the gate in the presidential palace in the tank. Uh, and they were wearing boots, if my memory serves, not, not barefoot at all. Right. Well, but, but the thing is, the... Um... The, since they had cultivated this myth the entire war as a, as a means of legitimacy, saying it was, it's an internal Southern thing, the North has nothing to do with it. So the people who signed the ultimate surrender were the, were the uh, Viet Cong. And in any, any significant victory, they would roll out the Viet Cong flag and say that it was Viet Cong who did it. So that was all part of communist propaganda. And that's probably how it got stuck in people's minds. But I mean, you're 100% right. It had nothing to do with the Viet Cong. Well, you remember the very famous incident of the colonel, Viet Cong colonel, who resigned her commission in anger over the fact that the Viet Cong were not being uh, treated by the North Vietnamese after the war was over. She resigned, and uh, it was a pretty big event at the time, I don't know. Yeah, because the, the VC were either North Vietnamese in disguise, or they were Southerners who are idealists, and you know what happens to idealists in communist countries, you know, they're, they're the first to go, <laughs> you know, they're the ones who go in the camps and go, I think I made a mistake. But um, yeah, that, that propaganda, and, and that, that image is still out there of the barefoot peasant, you know, kind of, you know, winning the war. I mean, what a joke. This was a Soviet and Chinese communist sponsored main force army that, that rolled in there and, uh, you know, the VC were pretty irrelevant. Okay, well, because you have this great shirt, I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a question. Because, um, you know, you mentioned a, a, a very interesting point of view, uh, the polls that uh, after Ted, the younger people um, uh, were supporting the war more. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's because that's always a sticky point, um, you know, because this, this thing by the press saying, you know, the draft was so awful, but there were actually more volunteers um, than draftees. So were, were there an uptick in volunteers with the uptick in the polls? Um, for young people? I don't know. That would be an interesting metric. That, that's a good point. I'd like to see that metric, yeah. Well, so, yeah, so that's yeah. one question. Uh, two, um, back to the earlier, I'm always perplexed. Um, you know, again, your point, it was not a surprise attack. Somehow, 
you know, the thing is, I like to bring the audience point of view of these things. They always get lost in the mix. And sure. in their view, it's, it seems like to the audience, it was kind of like a surprise that they were not as prepared as American troops. They were sent home, you know, they really, you know, and then they were got alerted and, and called back, but they were like chaos. It was, it was really telling you, you know, they, they could have um, prepped the territorial forces, rough pops, a bit better. Um, so, yeah, my question was was that it's not a surprise attack, but I think to the Ottoman, um, it was kind of, and, and I understand there were many moles in the Ottoman ranks, and they did not want that info to come out. But militarily, the, the Ottoman could have been more prepared. Right. The pro the U.S. government was arguing with the South Vietnamese government over canceling the leaves because the U.S. was on alert and they wanted them to shorten it and like say, hey, you know, come back because this bad thing is going to happen. And the South Vietnamese government, I mean, I guess the equivalent in this country would be like canceling Christmas. I mean, it's like the biggest holiday of the year. So they were trying to be sympathetic to the troops who had to travel home and, and travel back. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They only like cut it back by half a day or a day or something like that. And so, yeah, there was a problem with you know people caught in transit, and you know, in fact, some troops got killed because of that because they were traveling and the VC or you know North Vietnamese intercepted them. But it wasn't because they weren't a good fighting force. Is my point that there was there was some uh, chaos because of the fact that they were out of place, you know, traveling around. But those who did fight did really well. Yeah, but I guess my, my point was it's not a surprise attack to the Americans, but to Arvin, it was, and you know, that, I, I think there, there were many things that kind of put them in the fight. Um, yeah, it wasn't that they didn't know the attack was coming, it's that they just weren't responding to it the way that we were advising. And maybe the South Vietnamese government thought they could handle it, you know, but they probably should have just canceled all the leaves, but, um, but they didn't, so. Well, this was such an engaging Q&A session and such an insightful lecture, um, one of the best ever. <laughs> so let's give a round of applause to... <laughs>